Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Africa might finally realize some of its enormous potential in the coming years. A booming, young, optimistic population. Vast reserves of the metals needed to power the clean energy transition worldwide. Widespread popular demands to end corruption. A growing middle class. What stands in the way? Among other things, too much debt compounded by too much history of mismanaging past debt. Of the 54 countries identified by the United Nations as having severe debt problems, 24 are located in sub-Saharan Africa today. Many of them, and probably some others, may be headed towards default, restructuring, or cancellation. Bright Simmons, a researcher and policy activist in Ghana, thinks it's time to do something different. He recently published an article in the Financial Times arguing that debt cancellation is not the solution Africa needs now. Some critics responded that cancellation is as urgent today as it was 20 years ago, which, from my point of view, probably makes the case that Bright is right. New thinking is badly needed. Welcome, Bright. Thank you for having me, Alan. Great to be on the show. Bright, your article points out that over the past 20 years, Sub-Saharan Africa's debt has more than doubled, even though more than 30 countries had substantial amounts of debt wiped out during that time. All that financial activity didn't buy very much growth. The region averaged only 2.5% GDP growth per year, which is more or less the population growth rate. What's the problem? So we've had these cycles of debt um, inflation and then debt cancellation for a while now. Now, the challenge that arises is that every time we cancel debt, um, two things happen. One is that you know, the countries in the natural course of their growth, because these countries are starting from a very low base, um, accumulate even more debt because development has to be financed. So the second thing then happens, which is the diversity and the complexity of the creditor landscape makes it harder to use the same cancellation method. So we have to become much more creative. So in short, what has happened in Africa is that as the continent has grown and as I, I'm, you know, I, I have to keep repeating, it's been growing from a very low base. This is a country, a continent where uh, per capita GDP is a fraction of what it is um, in Europe or America. So, you know, the amount of capital that is going to be needed is massive. Given that all the multilateral development banks give about $170 billion a year and private capital is multiples of that, if you want money to develop, inevitably you're going to have to borrow private money. So you have to be able to pay back, which means you have to be able to invest in productive ways to pay back. Cancellation is not a, a sustainable way of addressing this issue of debt-driven uh, 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 development financing. So debt-driven development, debt, debt driven development financing is important because most of the capital have to come from private capital, and private, cap, private people are not going to give you money for free. They're going to expect you to pay back. The challenge is that you have to invest in productive uh, uh, avenues so that overall your capacity to pay back improves over time, not declines over time. The challenge is that in many African countries, as the scale of financing needs have expanded and as we've tapped into the private market, 
the productive side have not kept pace. And so now we have this situation where we just have to find a way to address that. But some people are calling for simplistic responses, in my view, um, and it doesn't go to the root of the matter. Let's talk about the supply side for a minute. As you pointed out, there is, has been increased demand for finance. There's been increased supply of finance as well. But there's also been, as your article uh, demonstrates, a shift in sources. Uh, China has shown up. Turkey has shown up. Private investors have shown up. Uh, before, let's leave China aside for a moment. Is this shift not away from the usual suspects, but to complement the usual suspects, is this shift good or bad? And what are the consequences for Africa? So you're absolutely right. There are about four main shifts. One is that the multilateral development banks themselves are now more increasingly reliant on the private uh, markets. So the World Bank, the IMF, and all of those guys, they also have to borrow in the international markets and they need these ratings to borrow, right? So that has affected you know, the way we have to frame the problem. If you take uh, the multilateral development banks as a whole, maybe 10% of the money that they deploy comes from rich governments, 90% comes from the private sector, and they use guarantees from the rich countries to borrow. So most of the money that the rich countries put into the multilateral development banks, it's not actually direct cash, it's guarantees which allow them to borrow in the private market. So that's number one. And that has increased over time. The second issue that has changed on the landscape is China has come in. So in Ghana, of the part of the debt that Ghana doesn't borrow from the big bank, the big multilateral development banks or from the private bond market, it borrows from rich countries. And among those rich countries, China is more than half. So essentially, if you take its bilateral debt, the debt that it doesn't borrow from, the World Bank IMF and private bondholders, that debt that it borrows from the UK, the US, and the rest of it, of those countries, set of country creditors, China has about 50% uh, holdings of that debt. So that's a very important development. The third development, which is, in my mind, to my mind, even more critical, is that domestic capitalists are becoming more and more responsible for funding these countries and their development. So in Ghana, for instance, um, more than 70% of the government's servicing, how much it pays in debt, is, goes to domestic capitalists, local investors, their own banks, their own, etc. So that's a huge of huge importance. And the reason why that has happened is that most African countries, well, not most, but the big ones, have managed to move away from just short-term uh, domestic sovereign uh, borrowing, which is treasury bills, where the debt has to be paid back within a year, to the ability to borrow long-term on the domestic market, issue long-term bonds, three years, five years, and the rest of it. And that has changed the availability of local supply of funds because local pension funds, local insurance companies, et cetera, are, pay, um, are giving money to the government. Then the fourth uh, dimension, which is uh, equally important, is that the eurobond market has become the dominant way of financing in the international private market. It used to be the London market. And so the London club, which was the big commercial, international commercial banks, used to be the big provider. Now it's eurobonds. What does that mean? What that means is that even on the Western side or the Asian side, whatever you think of it that way, the people that are actually putting the money is not just big, rich banks. It's also pension funds in the West, pension funds in the East. Um, of course, there are rich hedge funds and the like. But the diversity, even on the, com on the private commercial side, is important. So those are the four key characteristics that have emerged, which we need to take notice of. Now, what that means is three things. One is that when you attempt to 
um, address depth challenges. You have to deal with a very broad, neurodiverse, um, you know, ideologically diverse group of uh, actors. So that makes it very difficult to, you know, address uh, depth issues in the same way that we used to a decade ago or more than a decade ago. The second thing that has, you know, um, um, changed is that the terms are dramatically different. So one, what works for one doesn't work for another. So it's not just getting them together. It's not just a fragmentation. It's also the fact that the terms are very diverse. Every, each of them have a very different view of development finance and their role, their role in it. The third is creating a lot of room for arbitrage to play one against the other or for everybody to wait on and point to the other as the one to act, etc. So it's created an inertia and arbitrage problem. So those are the three key issues and the four key characteristics that have emerged since the last uh, crisis. Let's focus on the Chinese piece of that puzzle. Uh, China, both because of the Belt and Road Initiative, but also because of Chinese foreign policy more generally and its embrace of Africa, has become an important creditor uh, in Africa, in the developing world, world more generally. Uh, I saw one estimate recently that since, since 2017, uh, China may have provided more capital than any other single set of institutions, including the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, China really is uh, the driver of global finance in, in, the, in, in Africa and in the emerging world. Uh, so China is, in a sense, part of the problem. That is to say, they're on the, the liability side of the balance sheet uh, of, of Africa. Are they part of the solution? So China deploys money through three main channels. One of it that the government itself gives money directly, not a lot. So uh, second, it deploys money through export credit institutions, which is the, by far the majority of, of, of the flows. So China Exim Bank, China Development Bank, um, and the like. And the third is that private Chinese companies and states-owned enterprises sometimes directly themselves engage in project financing. The, the bulk of the, 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 the issue is within the export credit space. And in the export credit space, China is very project-driven because the way export credit works is that we've got stuff in China, there's a bit of a surplus Let's send it elsewhere. So China went on a, on a railway building binge, high-speed high rail. They, they started building a whole bunch of things. And then they had all this excess capacity, which they had to deploy through Belt and Road. And some of that got into Africa. So that's the first key point to, to, to bear in mind when, it, when talking about China. The second thing to bear in mind when talking about China is that it's a, because it's going through export credit, it's highly commercial. So the Chinese, you know, get flustered when people try to treat them as if they're the IMF or the World Bank or the USAID. It's not the USAID. It's not the World Bank. These are, you know, Chinese development banks that are trying to export surplus. They can't keep canceling debt every three years because, you know, you 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 blew money on your elections or, or whatever. So that's an important piece of the puzzle, which is in China is very commercial, very project by project. They don't get this whole idea of, you know, putting everything in one port and trying to discuss it as if, you know, there are no there are no differences among the different investments. So if the Chinese put money into a mine and you say you have problems paying, they're like, well, you are producing minerals, aren't you? What, what do you mean you have problems paying? I mean, we have this particular mine that we've invested in. Pay from that mine. And so they have a challenge with this approach which we take, which is holistic management of debt in that way. But they are learning very fast. The third issue you have with the Chinese is that um, they've benefited a lot from global development financing. Most people are aware that China, India, and Brazil are the top three countries that make money from multilateral development banks, even when they don't put in their own money. So if you look at World Bank Baden, if you look at African Asian Development Bank Baden, if you look at African Development Bank Baden, China, Chinese contractors win a lot of that money. So China has been very uh, effective in first 
exporting excess capacity through the aid system because even though it's not aid, it looks like aid, uh, China Exim Bank and things like that. And then secondly, because it's been good uh, at bidding for projects, even when there's not their money at stake. So those are key important drivers. What is the latest challenge? The latest challenge is that the Chinese argue that, okay, you guys are asking us to come to the table and kind of treat this whole thing holistically. That's smart. But why are you saying that IMF and World Bank cannot participate in traditional debt relief of this nature? Traditional debt relief programs uh, assume that there's a preferential credit status for the big multilateral development banks. They don't, they don't, you don't restructure their debt. And the argument is pretty straightforward. The argument is that because they raise most of their money in the private capital markets, they need an AAA rating. And to get an AAA rating, this idea that when there is a crisis, they will be considered uh, number one. They, they have seniority in terms of their debt. This idea that at any point we can just stop, reset, wipe out the debt, and then start all over again without any repercussions and intertemporal effects, I think it's not very sound. And the Chinese situation kind of demonstrates that. The fact that the IMF and the World Bank says we have to have this sacrosanct um, respect for rating agencies and our credit ratings tells us that, you know, some of these matters are not as simple as they look. And I think the Chinese are kind of latching onto that. In the case of specific African countries like Ethiopia, Zambia, and the rest, um, there's been also institutional complexities around who you are dealing with in China. So the Ghanaian government initially, you know, flew into, tried to go into China and talk directly to the government of China. And the Chinese are like, well, you don't talk to the government of China on this. You go talk to Exim Bank. So they are dealing with Exim Bank now. The Ethiopians managed to get the Ethiopian government involved based on strategic bilateral relationships, which brings me to the last point. China is not uniformly spread across Africa. China is extremely concentrated in a number of specific African countries. Even in countries like Ghana, which are prominent countries, so Ghana is maybe the, you know, within the top 10 economies in Africa, China is a much smaller player than China is in, say, Angola or Ethiopia. So of, of Ghana's entire debt of about 30 uh, billion external debt, China uh, is only about $1.9 billion thereabout. So not a huge amount uh, comparatively. But if you go to Ethiopia, if you go to Kenya, you find out that China, uh, Kenya's external debt, maybe 30% of that is China. Um, same in Ethiopia. So we have this issue where the Chinese go to countries where either they have uh, projects that they like because the projects are well-developed or the governments have significant control over the commanding heights. And so if they have a strategic relationship with the government, it filters through the rest of the society. In countries like Ghana and Nigeria, that's very difficult to achieve because of democracy, right? So these countries are highly democratic. Um, and so China kind of struggles with grand bargains at the top. And one thing that most people are not aware of is that China doesn't have the complementary aid infrastructure that the U.S. and the rest of the other big Western countries have. What does that mean? They don't have the consulting companies, for instance. So if you want to deploy a project in, in Ghana and it's a U.S.-funded project, there's a wide range of ancillary support structures that the U.S. can bring to bear, consulting, capacity building. It makes it easier for them to manage risk. China doesn't have that. And it's, it struggled a lot in project delivery in countries like Zimbabwe because initially it went there thinking because the government is fully in control, it can pump in money, and that would just happen. Things would just happen. A world under stress needs leaders in every discipline and in every country. Leaders whose work is innovative, courageous, rooted in universal values, and global in approach or implication. If you know someone like that, in your company, in your university, in your community, anywhere, please nominate that person for the Talberg SNF Aliasin Global Leadership Prize. Go to talbergprize.org. 
That's T A L L B E R G Prize dot org. China is different than the West. That that's an obvious point,、um, but we forget it. First point. Second point. China doesn't necessarily want to play within the framework, and I use that word deliberately,、uh, that the West has designed to reflect its own interests, its own structures, etc. And the third point is that since China is the newest big investor on the block, almost inevitably they are going to continue to try to change how this system works. As well as their own learning curve. They have their own learning curve, and they have their own interests, and they are not. Necessarily, in fact, I'd say they're not coincident、uh, with those of Europe and, and, and those of the United States. But let's—you've you, mentioned—you just mentioned Ghana, and in fact, I'd like to use Ghana as sort of a case study of what we're talking about. Ghana is a country that, after the turn of the century, went through a traditional debt rescheduling、um, and, and cancellation. Then it became one of the darlings of the bond market,、uh, as you've described. And became, as a result, one of the fastest-growing countries in Africa,、uh, particularly in the last ten years. Fast forward today, Ghana ends up with thirty billion dollars in debt, of which thirteen is from the bond market, which is huge. That almost fifty percent of the、uh, of the debt、um, is in the middle of a rescheduling, is in the middle of an IMF negotiation,、uh, is trying to negotiate separately with the Chinese.、Um, Has halted. Has defaulted. Use the D word. Has defaulted.、Uh, what happened? How did Ghana, high flying Ghana, end up back because it's returned back in debt distress? Yeah. So it's, it's in debt distress, but it's also at the IMF trying to enter into another three year program,、uh, often called the ECF, Standard Credit、uh, Facility, which would be the eighteenth in its history. Which Yes, it will be the seventeenth actual program and the eighteenth time that well,、uh, the IMF has given them money. So、it's、not necessarily a sign of successful、uh, from either the IMF's point of view or Ghana.、Uh, yeah, policy management. Yeah, so I was actually reviewing some of the previous World Bank IMF uh, programs um, in Ghana, and you know, and this is obviously a side point. It turns out that even historically, when Ghana was held up. As a, a prime example of successful structural adjustment, the World Bank actually used to have a lot of problems with project management in Ghana. Ghana used to be seen as a poster child. I was I was just you know looking through the data and, and finding out that even then Ghana had some challenges with project、uh, delivery. The big challenge with Ghana has been that you know the money when it comes through、um, has gone into a lot of social financing and for expanding the power of the state, the prestige of the state. Um, for spanning the for for、uh, consolidating the grand bargain at the top is what I call it, and not as and hasn't gone into productive investments in the way that、um, in East Asia in some parts of South Asia、um, happened. You know, so the the, the, the emphasis on、um, financing, let's say, development banks that actually put in a lot of capital through、um, different facilities for、um, export support、uh, and things like that, haven't been very impressive. On, on the contrary, what Ghana has done when it's it's got debt relief, and remember, it got about seventy percent of all its debt cancelled around two thousand and six, and how much it used to pay for servicing debt dropped all the way down to below ten percent. It's now back up to over eighty percent. And but when it got that fiscal room, it's what we call it. When it got that flexibility, because it didn't have to pay so much, it spent a lot of the money increasing the salaries of public、uh, sector workers. You know, so it tripled public sector wages. 
Then the next big thing that it did was a lot of infrastructure that was not particularly linked to industrialization or agricultural modernization. So a lot of you know interchanges in, in, in cities, a lot of roads in uh, uh, town roads, as opposed to roads that you know go into agricultural hinterlands, or and um, even port modernization was not very effective. So even today, with all the money Ghana has spent, you have um, um, oil services companies preferring to use Togo next door or Ivory Coast instead of Ghana. Um, so there was a lot of investment in infrastructure that could have been done linked directly to productive output. That was not that. Part of that was the failure of the planning process. The National Development Planning Commission in Ghana is one of the weakest state agencies compared to, say, India or Malaysia or China or any of these countries. Every government that has come has thrown away the last government's development plan and started all over again. So there's basically no linkage from administration to administration. In some ways, this has also happened at the same time as Ghana's democracy has flourished. But it hasn't happened in a way that the flourish of the democracy has happened in a way that enhances the bureaucratic capacity. So the government's ability to deliver on programs is weak. And when you look at how much money comes in and how much actually goes into product investments, that is where you find a mismatch. The next phase of uh, our IMF adventure led to the new government actually deciding to put a lot of money into free education. Now, education is a great thing, but when you look at you know, all the math around, you know, African situation around, all the you know, education that has happened in Nigeria and elsewhere and the rest, not enough has gone to vocational and technical. We've not been able to invest in the actual output of education. So if you link education to specific outcomes, the linkage has been broken. And yet we spend a lot of money on free education and things like that. So the short answer is that, you know, Ghana has invested in those things that has kept the country's democratic practice alive, uh, maintained solid social solidarity to a certain point, maintained a grand bargain at the top. But it hasn't really done much when it comes to economic transformation. And so we don't have an economy that's radically different from before all this money came in. That's a big problem. So we're sitting here in early 2023. We've got $30 billion in debt in default. Uh, the country is negotiating what inevitably will be an austerity program with the IMF, uh, is negotiating uh, with its creditors some kinds of solutions. Uh, what happens next? So Ghana is now doing three things, as you rightly pointed out. It's gone to the common framework. Um, so it's as the Paris uh, club, which is the, the rich countries, to come together to set up a creditor committee. The rich country says China has to participate. China is still having this dance with them. But at some point, the bilateral creditors, which essentially the country creditors, the, the, you know, the debt that is owed to other countries, will be fixed there. That's a very small part of it. Ghana's biggest problem is not overall debt. As we all know, Japan has a debt to GDP of over 200%. The issue is how much it pays on that debt. So Ghana is focused a lot on where it pays most of that service on, where it pays a lot of interest and, and principal, and that is in the domestic market. So it was paying more than 70% of all its debt to domestic creditors. It's restructured that. It couldn't get you know, a very good outturn, but it's reduced about a billion dollars of debt servicing, so that's significant. Having done that, it's now moved to the bilateral, which is a small piece of the action, maybe $170 million a year can be saved there. The bigger part, for some reason, decided to postpone until it sorted out the bilaterals. I'm not too sure what the, what the strategy is, but somehow the view is that um, because you know these are private creditors, it's going to be harder. The IMF, I think, has a, um, a, a, a strategic understanding with them 
that they don't need to completely sort out the bond investors. But once it's done with the bilaterals, it has to sort out the bond investors, who, as you pointed out, is about $13 billion and the bigger chunk of the external problem. So it spends maybe a billion dollars or more on the external debt. 90% or more of that it goes to the bond holders. So you need to fix that. We've been talking about the financial engineering, and it's the nature of financial engineers that eventually they will solve this. Now, they may solve it in a way that is very costly to the country of Ghana uh, or less costly. Um, but in a sense, it's relevant in terms of how it impacts the economy going forward. Uh, and, and that's where we get back to austerity. Now, I, I'm one of those people that have trouble with the word austerity because the fact of the matter is that, as you've said, Ghana's had a lot of experience with IMF and austerity. And the reality of IMF austerity, whether it's Ghana or Pakistan or Argentina, uh, those two have even more programs than, than Ghana's had, is that they usually sign up for a year or two and then they stop doing it and they get on and do something else. So the IMF has a very poor track record over the course of its history with countries like yours in actually rebuilding a productive economy. So that's a long-winded way to ask the question, play this forward. What do you think will happen in terms of what really matters, which is how the economy functions in the future and it's financed in the future? And what would you do if you had the magic wand and could solve this? I think the international bailout system used to be simpler maybe four decades ago. The World Bank handled the long-term transformative stuff the IMF was just simply a fiscal administrator, comes in and imposes fiscal discipline. So it gives you some briefing room to do the longer-term program. That has become complicated. And now the IMF is supposed to have a poverty and inequality mandate as well. So all the programs that it deploys must also not lead to social instability. That becomes very difficult to design. Anyway, the big challenge is that in countries like Ghana, Pakistan, and the rest, the, the national budgets are more or less frozen. In Ghana, we spend on debt servicing and, and salaries for public workers, we spend more than 100% of all the country's revenues. So you, if you fix the debt issue up to a point, and it's not looking like it's not going to be completely fixed because the government has simply shifted from international borrowing to borrowing on the short end of the domestic market at higher rates. It's beginning to improve that a little bit, but it's still very expensive. It's still borrowing up on, on average about 25% or so percent per annum. So that is like unthinkable. Anyway, so what you have is essentially the government spends all its money on debt and paying salaries of workers. You can't default completely because you have to still keep borrowing. So you have to still keep borrowing on the local market at that high cost. And then you have to still pay workers, which leaves no room really for a real austerity program. So what we've had is pseudo-austerity programs because there's no real room to actually cut government, the, the size of government. Now that means therefore that the IMF simply introduced in just confidence for uh, external uh, investors to come back in, for private sector to you know start putting back money back in, to moderate the, more, the macroeconomic heating, and uh, to temper all of those uh, spirits. And then what that allows to happen is that you can resume this se uh, semblance of normalcy. So we're really not doing much with IMF programs nowadays, to be entirely honest. What has to happen is that you have to find a way over the long term to reduce the size of government because... Until African governments can make more money, 
they shouldn't really be taking on additional responsibility at this stage, given how much of the money in the public sector is just going to paying workers and keeping the garments of afloat. So that's, I think, a, a conversation that nobody wants to have globally, but that's a big challenge. The second one is that you have to go productive. You just described perfectly, I think, the shell game. Let's pretend we're adjusting. That's supposed to inject confidence in our future. And historically, someone has shown up to finance in the face of that confidence, despite the history. The problem, which is what your article points out, is that as a country like Ghana becomes dependent on the international bond market, it's going to probably be more difficult to have the shell game work in the future. If Unless you can grow at 10% a year. And if there's no debt cancellation. Yeah, yes. And that is the root of your argument in part, that debt cancellation in the face of these kinds of creditors is a horrible idea. Yes, because the domestic creditors are not even going to allow it politically. And we just saw that. Ghana just went through a restructuring where the domestic creditors refused to accept anything uh, below uh, maybe 50% you know, of losses. They were just not willing to literally go on with it. And with domestic um, um, creditors also have political muscle. It's not, they're not just like bondholders sitting in London or sitting in Geneva. So people forget that part of it. So countries like Ghana or Kenya or Nigeria, where there's a lot of domestic capitalists with skin in the game, you can't use debt cancellation anyway, even if you wanted to. You can do that for some of the external, but in Ghana, 75% of local debt servicing burden was to domestic um, actors. So that's number one. Number two, you need to grow massively. The only way the African situation gets fixed is that the countries grow massively without government growing in tandem. The current paradigm is that the growth curve is tied at the hip with government uh, expansion curve. You have to disentangle those two curves because the governments are, as we know, it's hard for the government to be productive on the margin. So you need the government to maintain the rest of the system, but you can't expect that if the government is growing at the same elasticity as the rest of the economy, you'll be able to balance things out. So that is the challenge. How do we decouple growth from having to inject a huge amount of money into the public sector continuously? That is the, the issue now. It's probably also the issue for our next conversation because, but I do want to ask you whether you're optimistic in the face of all we know about the last 20 years that it's possible. I think it's possible, but the fact that of all the sub-Saharan African countries with a possible exception of Botswana, no one has been able to go on that table-charged growth paradigm makes us wonder whether there is another way apart from high-speed growth for two decades. Maybe there's a much, you know, Eastern European, uh, post-Soviet type model that we need to start looking at, where you, you you know, you don't table chart for a short period, but you dramatically change institutions, and then through that effort, better fiscal management. So growth is not that dramatic, but you don't have these episodic crashes. Well, I try to use this podcast to stimulate new thinking, and I confess, and I'll be a little cynical here, uh, I've never heard until now that the Soviet model might have come full circle and become new thinking. No, post-Soviet model. The post-Soviet model. In Eastern Europe. So essentially, what has happened in Hungary, um, in Romania, in those parts of the world, we did not follow the same trajectory because they didn't have the advantages of backwardness that they had in Eastern Eastern uh, Europe. They had a lot of legacy, right? So African countries also have similar legacy problems that is making transformation for productive high growth very difficult. 
even though people tend to think that we are similar to China or uh, to South Korea or to Taiwan, our situation because of the you know the, how we evolved um, looks more like the Eastern European situation. Let's leave it there. When we talk next, we'll try to figure out how Ghana can grow 10% a year and not have to go through another cycle of debt destruction. Thank you very much, Bright. It's a good conversation. Thank you so very much. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at Talberg Foundation. Org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>